The Israeli-Palestinian political impasse shows no signs of progress. Moreover, we could witness fresh spasms of violence in the West Bank and Gaza. At the same time, the burst of peace moves known as the Oslo process in the 1990s has not led to the subsequent massive rollback as some of its critics fear, at least not yet. But rather, there's a dynamic stuck in mid-gear. Some wonder if an Israeli-Palestinian civil society dialogue could impact the leadership of both sides. Yet sadly, both sides seem trapped by their own suffering and even by their own very different narratives about the history and the present. Yet today, on Decision Points, we are trying to find eloquent representatives who have each written a book about the societal Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They do not just speak at each other, but they speak to each other. Listen to this illuminating conversation. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points, a podcast dedicated to exploring key moments in the Arab-Israel relationship. My name is David Murkowski, Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and I'm delighted to go on this journey through history with you. We are all well aware of the political challenges, and 87-year-old Mahmoud Abbas, who has lost his ability to talk to the Israeli public and is also very challenged internally due to the lack of Palestinian elections since 2006. On the Israeli side, Benjamin Netanyahu is about to start his sixth term in office, Israel's longest-serving leader. He's about to be the most moderate member of a new coalition, which has junior parties that are very proud of being hard right. Moreover, we wonder if the economic and security cooperation between Israelis and Palestinians that has been surprisingly very durable will continue amid a very possibly inflamed discourse. So there's zero expectation of negotiations, let alone political breakthrough. At this difficult time, it could mean more of a spotlight on the societal discourse and to see if this is where hope will emerge. Yet it's not easy to find a conversation that has more light and less heat. The reasons are obvious. The consequences of unchecked tension between Israelis and Palestinian society have inflicted an enormous level of pain among both peoples. The violence of the first and second intifadas, or uprisings, and the particularly high number of civilian deaths that both periods have brought serve as a stark reminder of the human cost of unaddressed societal tensions. This is a lesson that remains apparent today. Albeit at a comparatively lower scale than the intifadas, we have witnessed terror attacks on Israelis, West Bank violence that has taken the toll of hundreds of lives as we reach the end of 2022. All this makes today's conversation more important and I think even more remarkable. I was looking for two people who can go beyond the bubble of each side, but address each other. Today, I'm joined by two such remarkable guests. One is a former Israeli extremist who's become an advocate for peace with the Palestinians, and the other is a Palestinian who was tragically shot by an IDF soldier as a child and has been able to transform his pain into forgiveness. Yusuf Bashir is the Director of Research and Operations at the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace and the former manager of congressional affairs for the Palestinian diplomatic delegation to the United States. His memoir, 
the words of my father, provide a powerful look into a childhood upended with the outbreak of the Second Intifada. Bashir recounts the IDF seizure of his family home as a command post and the pivotal moment in which an Israeli soldier mistakenly shot him in the spine. Despite the trauma of his physical pain, Bashir developed a connection with Israeli nurses and patients while undergoing treatment at an Israeli hospital. Today, Bashir remains motivated by his father's message of peace and coexistence and is an advocate for Israeli-Palestinian peace in the United States. Yassi Klein Alevi is a fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He grew up in Brooklyn in a family of Holocaust survivors and later immigrated to Israel. While he was living in Brooklyn, he became a member of the Kahanas movement while he was a teenager. In Israel, he became a proponent of West Bank settlement expansion. But his experiences in the IDF in Gaza as a reservist opened him up to the moral consequences of Israel's presence in the West Bank and Gaza. His book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is a profound attempt to share his personal experiences with the history of Israelis and the Jewish people with Palestinians, and most importantly, to begin a dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. In a series of letters, Halevi explores the traumas that persist among the Israeli people and the -the on-the-ground impact of larger political developments while at the same time looking always for a common ground. He continues his work today as the co-director of the Hartman Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. In fact, Yossi's book features a response from Yusuf, in which Yusuf writes, quote, the more we understand each other's narrative, the more of a basis we have to coexist, end quote. They've appeared together just a few times before, and I'm excited to bring these two thoughtful individuals back together today to help deepen our understanding for coexistence. I want to welcome Yusuf to Decision Points. Thank you, Yossi, and thank you, David. I want to welcome Yossi to Decision Points. Thanks for having me, and David, I so much appreciate you bringing Yusuf and I together. It's just great to have you both. What each of your books have in common is not just that you have the same publisher, which you do, but that both of you have traveled along the road of empathy for the other. Such empathy was not discovered during ideal conditions. Both of you see the second intifada between 2000 and 2004 is both the worst moment, uh, and yet for each it was a turning point. And your empathy seems to have each grown from there to the other side. So I guess... The first question is, what has made you more empathetic in a way that you feel is not the empathy of a naive optimist, but is one that has been hardened by reality on the ground? And Yassi, maybe we'll start with you. Well, first of all, I just want to say how wonderful it is to be with you, David. We're friends for more years than either of us can remember. And Yusuf, to be back with you, it's an honor. And I just want to thank you for helping me on the road to empathy. You're one of the people that really had a, a big impact on my thinking. And you've also helped me approach the, the question of our differences in a more empathic way. How do we argue? How do we bring to the table our really irreconcilable narratives? 
because we see things, uh, and you and I have had enough private conversations and public conversations that we've played out our, our differences over and over again. And yet, I, when I see you, I have to tell you, my heart opens. I just want to tell you, I have tremendous love and respect for you. Likewise. And so uh, I'm delighted to be here. Likewise. So. Well, thank you very much. And so I guess this question, Yessi, of where, you know, how does empathy come? Not the empathy of the naive optimist, but something hardened by reality. And, and if you could also relate to this question, and I see it going on campuses across America with Rachel Omari, I think I've done over 160 campus visits is the idea that you start to realize that the other person's narrative is not based in malice, but is based in maybe an education and experience. And once you think the narrative is not based in malice, does, does it help you think differently about the other side? Yessi. So I, I think that there's a preliminary step before reaching that understanding. And the preliminary step is we live in a deeply flawed world. And history and politics are the arena of our flaws and of our failures. And, and so I have a set of political positions, but I, I need humility because my reading of history, my understanding of the political reality is flawed. And I think that what's so missing today in not just the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but in the way Democrats and Republicans argue with each other, is this confusion between politics and religion. And politics is the arena of imperfection. Religion is the aspiration for perfection. And to confuse the two, I think, is in some ways the source of much of the inability to listen, to have empathy. And Yusuf and I, what we share in common is that we're both religious people. And as we all know, religion can be, religion is like uh, nuclear power. It can be used for good and it can be used to, to destroy the world. And what brought Yusuf and I together was the sense of respect for each other as people of faith as people who are really trying to live in God's presence. And Yusuf, I, I, you, you wrote that to me in your response to my book. You said that this is the first time you were able to hear an Israeli perspective because I was writing as a religious person. And that for me was so important. So, so David, before we even get to understanding who the other side is and where your interlocutor is coming from, you have to understand yourself and you have to have the humility to know this is my position, but it isn't, uh, as Jews say, Torah Sinai. It's not revelation from Sinai. It's my reading of a very flawed and tragic story. You know, we don't even have to call it a, a religious perspective. Call it a spiritual perspective. And if your starting point is spiritual and not ideological, then you can open up to that kind of conversation. Yusuf, where does empathy come from you? I agree with so much that Yossi said, you know, as a child, the world kind of comes to you and puts stuff in your head until you reach maybe 15 and uh, you start to process all that information you've been receiving as a child and you start to come to your own conclusions. 
I very much agree with Yossi's point about spirituality. It makes a big difference. I am proud and I love being Muslim. I love my religion beyond anything I can, I can say here. I also love my heritage. And like Yossi said, you start by understanding who you are, what you stand for, and what you're meant to stand for. Once you reach that understanding, you see the world the flawed world that Yossi speaks about, including the ones who seem unfamiliar, such as the Israelis to a lot of Palestinians, you see them in a much more flexible way, a comprehensive way, and uh, you feel that it is uh, unfamiliar, but there is ways to understand it and even study it which will add to my understanding and feed my empathy, not only to the, towards the Israelis, but towards my, my people and towards the world that I live in with them. So, and, and let me go back to you, Yusuf. So if we are looking for this mutual acceptance, where does it come from? Does it come from leadership? Does it come from the ground where the leaders, the people are ahead of the leaders? Does it come from mutual economic benefit? Does it come from a political breakthrough? But how do you have a political breakthrough without the leadership? So I'm trying to think what's going to take us forward for a mutual acceptance between peoples. Yusuf, what do you think? I think I've just done my first visit to Gaza. I visited my house. I've seen my family. I've seen people I haven't seen since coming to the United States in 2006. And what I saw on the ground was that Mutual understanding in a lot of ways does exist. People on the ground, they want to live in peace, but we don't have the leadership that can take that to and make it into, you know, uh, reflected in policies. I think what Yossi and I are doing is that we are taking a step back from the leadership and sharing our stories, our narratives, our experiences, our pains, and sharing it on a human level through art, through a book. It's not a political speech. It's not a campaign. It's a book you can read or you cannot read. It's up to you. But we're doing it through art, if you will. And one day, if Yossi and I keep doing what we're doing, it's going to produce that level of leadership that will allow the mutual understanding that I, I think already exists on the ground to be translated into policies that will reflect that mutual understanding. Jesse, what do you think? Yeah, I think what's so what's so exciting about being a writer is that you never know who you're going to reach. You send something out there, uh, you have to let go of it. You know, as soon as, as soon as you publish, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to to your readers. Uh, I haven't read letters to my Palestinian neighbor since it came out. I've forgotten large parts of it. And yet the, the process of letting go of the book and handing it over to the reader is on the one hand very difficult for a writer, honestly. On the other hand, it's, it's why you do it. Uh, yes, you want to express yourself, but really you want to enter into the consciousness of another person. And, and you know, think about what a privilege it is as a writer to be admitted into the mind of someone else. You're trespassing into someone's inner life, and there's something very irrational about this process. On a rational level, you write a book, and you haven't changed anything. And on the surface of things, you know, okay, Yusuf and I have a relationship now as a result of our books, and that's very precious to me. But we're not changing the world in any perceptible way, but you never know. 
Yusuf, this is where I really agree with you. And I feel there's this tremendous sense of privilege and responsibility that a writer has to try to get it right, because you never know who you're going to influence. And we haven't, I think, throughout the, the decades, we have never been able to share our stories to one another, let alone the world. And I think we wonder why and why and when the leadership, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is we do not know how we feel about one another and we do not know how our stories are, should be told. And we don't even know our, what our stories are, not to mention, you know, take Israelis out of the Palestinian story and take the, the Palestinians out of the Israeli narrative. We really do not know our upbringings and our history and our narratives and our stories and our, our perspectives on things. And I think that this is crucial, that we are able to, what we've done here is that we've, like you said, you said trespass. We've trespassed towards that wall between us that have for so long disabled us from sharing our stories with one another because Somehow we have to make peace, but we've never really spoken to one another on a human level. So we're changing that. And for that, I'm extremely grateful and proud. It places a great responsibility on the writers of both sides, on the storytellers. Exactly. I mean, look, this is what, you know, it shouldn't be such a novel idea that of all these different channels of communication, the least tried is the society to society approach of, of people understanding each other's stories. I remember, I could tell you, when I was in the government working for the Secretary of State, I thought it was so important if we could have the leaders address the other side, 2000, 2014. And that was the one thing the leaders refused to do. They said, we're willing to talk to you like in a hermetically sealed laboratory, effectively. But once we go public and try to talk to the other side, it raises the political costs for each of us with our own camp, and that they refuse to do. I mean, Yusuf, has your book been translated into Hebrew yet, for example? No, I would, I'm working on that. I would love to see that happening because I've, I've received a lot of Palestinian responses, uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, in Gaza, and mostly Palestinian Americans based in the U.S. and other countries, of course, many Jewish Americans, but I feel like I'm yet to reach to deliver my book and my story to the Israeli reader. Yosef, Yosef we should talk about that afterwards. Let's, let's see if we can further that. Yeah. I mean, Yossi, for you, when you published Palestinian responses to your book, I mean, whatever criticisms they may have, I mean, the fact that they were reading it and responding to it, that must have been satisfying to you. Absolutely. Look, I wrote the book in order to start a conversation. I had no preconceived ideas of what kind of conversation it would be. First of all, I didn't know if anyone would respond. And I certainly didn't know if anyone on the Palestinian side would respond positively or be willing to engage. You know, the basic premise of my book is that the starting point for a conversation is the two sides accepting the legitimacy of the other, that this is the tragedy of this conflict is that it's between two indigenous peoples who both have the right to national self-determination. Once you agree to that premise, you can then argue about everything else. 
And Yusuf and I, we argue about everything else. Who's responsible for the failure of the peace process? What happened two weeks ago on the border? We don't agree on, on most of the details. But if you agree on the basic premise of what this conflict really is about, then you have a direction for how to solve it. And so for me, that's really what I was looking for, were people who would just agree on that. But that's, that actually is, is a lot to ask for. Because that's what the conflict is about. And do you see any progress on that? I mean, from where you're sitting, beyond the headlines of he said this, she's, you know, all the violence. Do you see any inroads on the legitimacy question, Yassi? No, no, we're moving backwards. And, and I'll just speak on the Israeli side. I'll let Yusuf speak for the Palestinian side. What, what I see on the Israeli side is that the younger you go in Israel, the less willingness there is to consider the Palestinian position. And the generation that grew up after the failure of the peace process and the generation that grew up with the Second Intifada and its aftermath is deeply wounded. And it's wounded in the most tender part of the psyche of a young person, which is the place of hope. To be young and not to have hope is in some ways antithetical to the experience of being young. And a generation of Israelis have grown up without hope on solving this conflict. And when you don't have hope, it's very hard for you to listen to the suffering and to the historical arguments of the other side, because you're so entrenched in your own experience, in your own wounds, your traumas, that you can't really listen to the traumas of the other side. And Yosef, how do you see that? It makes me, it makes me sad. I went to Brandeis. My classmates were from Tel Aviv and soldiers in the army, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I feel like I got very close to the Israeli narrative, not to mention my time in Israel before and my time in Gaza just with the soldiers in general. You know, every Christmas or every Thanksgiving, every holiday, I couldn't go home, but they could travel, see their parents, unite with their families, come and go as they please. Yet I was always saying, peace is possible, peace is possible. Well, they, peace is never going to happen. It's not possible. We're very pessimistic, etc., etc. And that always made me think, because it left an impression on me that here I am. Because the truth is, as we speak right now, Yossi and I are not equal. As much as we, we recognize one another, the world that we live in does not look at us through the same lenses. And so for the Israelis who are struggling and have no hope, it means that Palestinians who are also struggling have also have grown years without hope. So it's just, it makes me, it makes me sad and it breaks my heart that the one who are prosperous and successful still feels that they are living life without hope. So it makes me feel that I am trying to build the home in the middle of the ocean. I need my, the other side, my Jewish cousins to have a little bit of, of understanding because they're standing on a higher mountain than I do. They see the world differently. They have more opportunities and more freedoms. Uh, that I, I feel that people like Yossi, who understand the religion, understand the story, and willing to hear, can really help both of us bring this conflict to a halt at the least and allow the process of understanding to move forward 
for me as a Palestinian, where I'm not able to go, I just made my first trip home in 16 years. Well, Yossi, you know, for you, I'm sure, and I, I don't hate you for it. I'm happy that you get to go and come as you please and see your family. It's harder for Palestinians to process it, and it makes me feel that the Israelis have a larger responsibility here to bring this uh, process and allow it to move forward. Yossi, do you accept that? Yeah, I, I think that one of the complications in the conflict is the gap between objective reality and the subjective experience. Objectively, Yusuf, you're absolutely right. And the asymmetry in power and in experience is overwhelmingly in favor of Israel. Subjectively, that's not how Israelis experience the conflict for several reasons. One is because what we have in our heads is a kind of a split screen. On one side of the screen is Israel versus the Palestinians, and there we are Goliath and the Palestinians are David. But when you widen the screen to look at the conflict generally, you factor in Iran and Hezbollah and Syria, Israelis experience the Middle East conflict in a much different way. And it's true that the Middle East is changing in Israel's favor. But one of my frustrations here is that I feel that the Israeli public hasn't yet psychically absorbed the changes. You know, after a hundred years of conflict where the region, the whole region was aligned against Israel's existence, that has had very deep psychological impact on Israelis. And so, you know, one of my frustrations is that just at the moment when large parts of the Arab world is opening up to us, this is the moment when Israelis decide to elect the most extreme anti-Arab elements in Israeli society. It's actually insane. But that's an expression of this gap between objective reality and subjective experience. And so it doesn't help to browbeat Israelis and say, you have all the power because Israelis emotionally don't experience that. Israelis feel that if we let our guard down for a moment, the Middle East will destroy us. Now, whether that's objectively true or not, we can argue. But this is a conflict that in some way is subjective. Now, that's very easy for an Israeli to say, because for you, Yosef, the conflict is not subjective. The objective reality is that I can go, come and go as I please, and you can't. That's just an objective reality. The problem is that the subjective experience of Israelis reinforces this reality. And so we have to deal with the subjective. And one of the reasons why I feel your work is so important and why it's so important to get your voice into Hebrew is because Israelis need to understand need to hear these. We don't hear these voices. All we hear is hatred, delegitimization. You have no right to exist. We don't hear those voices. Sorry, Yosef, when you hear Yassi, does that, I mean, this point of that the Israelis only hear the voices of hatred. Do you see where he's coming from? Can you understand that? Or, or is, you can say, look, all I know is my experience is unequal to yours. It's not an even playing field that I can't really digest that point? Or do you see it? No, I do see it. I understand. Yossi and I went back and forth on a lot of the issues we're discussing today. The issue is for me is that what can I do to help this point that Yossi brings up? 
You know, the Israelis feel like they can't let their guard down. I ask myself automatically, what can I do to help ease that fear or, or, or? And one way I'm doing is that I will forgive the soldier who shot me in the, in the spine without cause. I will forgive the soldiers who occupied my house without cause, etc., etc. Not to mention everything that has been inflicted on my people by the Israelis. So I am more than willing, and I will go back to saying I thank my religion for this understanding and my parents who taught me to always give the benefit of the doubt to the children of Abraham. Christians, Jews, Muslims, we have a responsibility, no matter how difficult, no matter how unrealistic, we have a responsibility, a holy responsibility, if you will, to go back and forth and try to break down the barriers. I am more than willing to do what I need to do in order to help my Israeli friends, neighbors, enemies feel safer. But the question is, will the Israelis be able to do that in return to me, my narrative, my Palestinian neighbors, my friends, my teachers? I don't know. But I'm more than willing and committed to do what I need to do in order to help my Israeli neighbors, I will say it, come to the table and try to understand me and not be terrified every time I speak of a Palestinian state, of a Palestinian right, uh, freedom of movement, etc., etc., because it's just, it's unbearable. I cannot tell you how unbearable it is. I just went home and I saw the many Palestinians who are stuck living without hope. People I left when I was 16, I returned. They are far older than I am, but I am more successful than they w- will ever be. So it's um, we, we have a responsibility. And I feel that the way I was raised in Gaza, a hostile place by all means towards Israel, according to the Israeli narrative, I very much more than willing to hear my Israeli the Israeli narrative and I want to do what I need to do in order to help them come to the table understand how I see the universe and how I see the world and how I feel every day but I feel of course I know that Yossi will not agree with this but I feel that the Israeli leadership is committed is committed to ensuring that the Palestinian experience, the Palestinian story, the Palestinian human experience never makes its way to the Israeli mind. Look, I look at the leaders, the Arab leaders, who were able to transform the thinking. I remember Moshe Dayan used to say, better Sharma Sheikh than peace. And then he ended up doing peace and giving up Sharma Sheikh, gave up the whole Sinai. You know, Anwar Sadat came. He transformed the way Israelis thought about the conflict. Leadership made a difference. And he was heralded by as the Messiah by Golda Meir and many others. King Hussein, same story. He had a certain magnanimity of spirit, and he totally transformed the way Israelis think. The Emiratis don't have the same leader per se, but there's no baggage. They never fought Israel on the playing field. There is no bloodshed between them. It's a much easier, very future, commercially oriented future So it's different. And I'm aware that each three of these cases that I'm bringing are fundamentally different than the Palestinian issue because of all the reasons we're discussing today, that the issue is one of legitimacy. But if Yassi is right, that the issue is one of legitimacy, doesn't that suggest that a Palestinian leadership could say, look, Smotrich, look, Ben Gvir, 
whoever it is, and say, listen, we accept you, but you have to accept us. We can't accept you if you don't accept us. There's too much history. There's too little geography. I mean, it just seems that creative leadership, the Israeli public can be moved. Historically, they've been moved by leaders. So I'm just asking you, I'm not putting all the onus on the Palestinians. I don't want that to be seen as that way. Of course not. But I'm just saying, I wonder if there's a certain fatalism on the Palestinian side. Ah, the Israelis elected who they elected. This shows you their true face. They're determined to have conflict forever. You know, but while historically we've seen what transformative leadership can do. And I'm asking you, Yosef, do you believe that transformative leadership is possible to change the, the underlying dynamic on the Israeli side? Like your thoughts. I think that it is possible, and I think we've seen bits of it over the years. Arafat, PLO have really transformed over the years its relationship with the U.S., with Israel, even with Arab countries. We've seen Palestinian leaders say what and do what they need to do uh, in order to help move this process forward. Of course, no, there is no such thing as perfect leaders on either side, but for a Palestinian leader, if they say, I recognize Israel as a state, which was done already, and I recognize Israel's uh, Jewish character, et cetera, et cetera, what, what counts on the ground for a Palestinian who is living in a refugee camp, wondering if they will ever return or at the very least have a better life? with dignity and security and everything basic that every human should get. Someone living in Gaza, someone living in the West Bank who have to cross a checkpoint and to go to work, be separated from their relatives. What counts on the ground is what counts on the ground. I could say I recognize Israel, but tomorrow morning, Israel will say, I'm going to build a new settlement. That makes me, as a Palestinian leader, look silly and have no legitimacy. And I think for a lot of Palestinians who were in support of the two-state solution in 1993 and there was this, this euphoria that we're going to live together, et cetera, et cetera, that was always and constantly challenged by either a construction here and there, prisoners in the Israeli prisons, unemployment, freedom of movement, so many issues that just take the legitimacy out of a Palestinian leader who you could argue they are sincere, not sincere, but any Palestinian leader, whatever they say, is I feel is, has been all constantly challenged by the Israeli policies on the ground within the territories at the very least. I meant it as conditional. Clearly, you're not going to recognize them as a Israel with a Jewish character without them also recognizing you as well. So I see it as linked. But anyway, Yassi, no. over to you. Yeah, first, parenthetically, you had a great line there, too much uh, history and too little geography. You have to write that. That's really a good line. (laughs) (laughs) Yusuf, I'm I'm relieved that we got to the point where we can start disagreeing again with each other, because the perception that Palestinian leaders have accepted Israel, that Arafat and the PLO or Mahmoud Abbas have accepted Israel, This is completely not the understanding in Israel. 
I don't want to argue with you about whether it's true or not. You can quote me this, and then I'll come back to you with a counter quote. And let's leave that aside and just talk about the perception. And the perception in Israel, which, as you know, I share, is that the Palestinian national movement in all of its factions has not yet come to terms with the legitimacy of the Jewish people's return to what we call home and that we are still seen as colonialists and Europeans and invaders. And that is deeply embedded in the Palestinian narrative, which is what we hear. If that's not true, then there's a real failure of communication, which we need to be addressing. But what we hear, and this is, I think, really, I'm asking you to hear this because I think it's really important in understanding how, how to work in this situation. What we think we hear from Palestinian leaders is complete rejection of our legitimacy. Now, if that's the case, and if Palestinian leaders have come to terms with Israel's legitimacy, then a wise Palestinian leader who realizes that the fate of the Palestinian people is in the hands of the Israeli public would at the very least make an effort to try to counter this if it is a misperception and really be clear. And from my point of view, as someone who wants to hear this message, who's trying to convince Israelis, as you said earlier, that we as the powerful side have a responsibility to not just wait for Palestinian recognition, but also to initiate processes, at the very least to stop building settlements. At the very least. And so I'm waiting. And if I feel that I don't hear it, then we have a problem. Now, there are, there are one of two ways in which we can address that problem. We can argue whether the perception is true or not, or we can say, all right, this is the Israeli perception. Now, what can we do to try to move that part of the Israeli public that knows that the occupation is a disaster for Israel? I'm not doing you any favors, Yusuf, by supporting a two-state solution. I'm doing myself a favor. I have to free myself from the occupation. And that's language that I use very deliberately. I have to liberate Israel from being an occupier because it's a disaster for me, for the moral credibility of the Jewish people, of a 4,000-year religious tradition. It's a disaster for Israel as a Jewish majority and democratic state. And what we see happening in Israel today is in large part, that's not the only reason, but it is in large part a consequence of the occupation. The rise of, of the far right is in some ways an inevitable expression of 50 years of occupation. So I'm with you. I want the solution that you want. But if I don't believe that the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian national movement is ready to accept my presence. If I believe that the day after we withdraw from the West Bank, we're more likely to get rockets on Tel Aviv than we are to have peace, then we have a problem, let's call it a problem of perception or maybe even misperception. We Israelis, maybe we're not seeing reality clearly, but then I need to hear that. And instead, what I hear is, you Israelis, all you want is occupation, all you want is war, we offered peace. You're not convincing me. How do we have a different conversation? So yeah, so Yusuf, before you respond, there's a story that's told 
that Walter Cronkite, who was the leading journalist of his era on CBS News, went to visit Vietnam. And he came back with a very bad report of, of progress. And LBJ was, Lyndon Johnson was in the White House. And he says, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost America. And I'm, I'm not trying to elevate Yossi Klein Alevi into Walter Cronkite, but I'm saying if you can't convince Yossi Klein, who's with you on the subject, isn't there a problem here? Sure. It sounds like it's uh, the problem. I carry the responsibility for that problem. And I don't think that that should be. I didn't say, I didn't say it that way at all. I, I just said, but the point is, is that if Yossi, who wants, who believes that occupation is corrosive, who wants to do things. Can I clarify just one point, Yusuf, about that? Sure. I'm not saying that the moral responsibility is on Palestinian side. I'm saying we have a practical problem here, and I need partners on the Palestinian side who can help me convince my fellow Israelis to see things in a different way. That's different. That's different than saying the onus is all on you, you're to blame. That's not what I'm saying. I need help. And I, I need that same help. I spoke about that earlier. I just think that there are, if Abbas and Arafat are unpredictable, et cetera, et cetera, say what you will about them, there are leaders on the ground in the West Bank, activists, who more often than not come under Israeli military harassment, people who want settlers and Israelis and Palestinians to come together and get to know one another. But those people are targeted just as if they say there is no Israel and there shouldn't be Israel, etc., etc. So it makes me confused to say that I'm not hearing it enough. I'm not seeing it enough. I should tell you about my father and I should tell you about his friends and I should tell you about a lot of people in the West Bank who work every day to bring Israelis and Palestinians together, but somehow they are invisible to the Israeli mind. And I just don't know what I need to do to answer to this problem that we're speaking about. So I know some of the people you're talking about, and you're right, and they are harassed by Israel. And I almost wish that we could make a pact, which is it's my responsibility to protect those people and to bring those voices into the Israeli public. And it's your responsibility to try to help Palestinians who are for peace to clarify and amplify their message, which is not just that we forgive you, Israelis. That's a complicated message for Israelis to hear because it's assuming that all the blame is on Israel's side. Now, when you say it personally, I have a great deal of respect for that because I know where that's coming from. It's coming from a place of very deep experience and pain and courage. But what I need to hear is not you forgive me. I need to hear you, the Jewish people, belong in this land and we have to figure out a way of two states living together. That's the only message that's going to change. And I'm speaking now as an average Israeli, not necessarily me personally, although also me. But what Israelis need to hear from you is you're here. We accept you. You belong to this land. I have no dream of throwing you out of here, of replacing you, of destroying the right of, of a Jewish majority state. But I want a Palestinian state. And so can we, on that basis, can we move forward? That's what I need to hear. Yosef? There are so many things I have to do 
and deliver to the Israelis before we even begin the process of living together. Yet, I am stateless. I lack so many tools and resources. I have all these responsibilities that I have to deliver just even before talking business. It's hard, but you know what? Life is not easy. And it has never been easy for Palestinians. So if that's the pact we have to agree on today, so be it. What I'm trying to say, I'm trying to offer a practical way forward. And whether it's fair or not fair, maybe you're right. It's not fair. We have the power, you don't. And so what is this pact all about? But I'm saying that nothing will move on the Israeli side until large numbers of Israelis don't begin to feel that, you know what, maybe there really is a chance for Israel to be accepted by the Palestinian national movement, by part of the Palestinian national movement. If we don't believe that, then we have a practical problem that has to be solved here. So Yassi, do you think then, but on the other half of the pact, you said that also there's a certain practical responsibility on the Israeli side. Absolutely. You know, to, to bring some of these voices. Absolutely. I, I would love to try to help Yusuf be published in Hebrew, for example. And not only, you know, and, and, and there are people who I'm sure we both know who deserve to be amplified and protected in Israel, and they're not. And so I have that responsibility. Well, I would like to just thank both of you for one of the most fascinating conversations that I've been a part of on this issue because I really think we started really to getting to the guts of this question. And I just cannot thank you enough, Yusuf Bashir, Yossi Klein Alevi, for really having us begin this conversation. So thank you to both of you very much for joining us on Decision Points. A privilege to be with you both. Thank you, Yossi, and thank you, David. And I look forward to never stopping this conversation. This was a fascinating conversation, and it was revealing on so many levels. I would like to mention just one dimension that struck me. Each side is convinced the other has the upper hand, and therefore it is they, the other side, that holds the keys to unlocking the Israeli-Palestinian societal impasse. If you ask Yusuf, he believes that Israel is a stronger party, and therefore will essentially decide when this conflict ends. It's a matter of choice. It just needs to let go of the West Bank. Yet Yassi was seeking to tell Yosef it was the reverse. As long as the Israelis do not feel welcome by Palestinians, that they are truly at home in their homeland, they will feel very vulnerable. Because if they're not fully legitimate, there'll always be Hamas and Islamic Jihad waiting in the wings. In this narrative, the Palestinians hold the keys to unlocking the current impasse because they could provide the legitimacy that both are at home. This withholding of legitimacy, according to Yassi, is not just misplaced for Palestinians given the sheer scope of Jewish history and the connection to the land, but it's ultimately self-defeating for the Palestinians as it ensures that Israel will remain better at discerning threats than seizing opportunities. It will be always with a clenched fist rather than an open hand. In short, each side lives in its own hermetically sealed bubble. Excuse the mixed metaphors, but all developments are refracted 
through the prism of each his own narrative. There's little oxygen in this bubble for the views of the other side. Letting some air in, at least to hear some thoughtful voices on the other side, would not be a bad place to begin. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Decision Points. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you listened to all of season four and to all previous seasons. You can find Decision Points on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast, as well as on the Washington Institute website. Download and subscribe to never miss an episode. While you're there, please leave us a review and rating and tell your friends. I want to thank all those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinators, Gabriel Epstein, David Patkin, and Jonah Schrock, and our researchers, Valeria De La Fuente and Stuart Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, Carolina Krauskopf, and Maria Rodacci of the Washington Institute. And finally, Adrian Bain, our producer, and Richard Myron from Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.